listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome back from the holidays. Welcome to another COVID wave. Welcome to episode 238. Today, as befits our timing, we'll be talking about the return to work amid Omicron. But first, the news. The St. Vincent Hospital nurses' strike is over, 301 days after it started. It was the longest nurses' strike in Massachusetts history, and we have, as all of you who've been listening know, covered it closely here at Belabored. So naturally, I called up two of the leaders of that strike here to tell us what they learned, what they won, and what's next. So to start out with, again, I'm going to ask you both to introduce yourselves so our our listeners can identify your voices. Uh, Marie, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, My name is Marie Ritacco, and I am a member of the negotiating team uh, for the St. Vincent Hospital Nurses, and I'm also the vice president of the Massachusetts Nurses Association. My name is Malena Pellegrino. I am a registered nurse at St. Vincent Hospital uh, for 35 years. I am one of the co-chairs of our St. Vincent Hospital M&A bargaining unit and a proud nurse. So congratulations are in order because you all are, um, the strike is officially over. And so we wanted to start out by asking what is in the final deal that allowed you to go back to work after, was it 301 days? Yes, uh, we were able to, um, to achieve an agreement and that agreement has been ratified. Um, we have achieved uh, tremendous improvements in staffing. So um, things at the bedside for our patients are going to be exponentially better. You know, we achieved language with regard to improvements in safety for our staff members, compensation improvements, uh, improvements with regard to cost sharing on uh, health insurance, which we have been trying to get for so, so long now. Um, So a major victory you know, the, this strike um, happened for one reason and for one reason alone, and that was because of the unsafe conditions in the hospital that existed prior to COVID and uh, were made exponentially worse by COVID. Um, and the nurses can claim victory. And soon we will be walking back into that building. We went out on strike March 8th, um, ten, over 10 months ago for staff, and we, we were able to finally achieve some really great um, improvements in staffing. Uh, adding more staff, registered nurses at the bedside, which was our main goal um, all along. But uh, in the last five, four or five months of the strike, it became very clear that um, our bigger fight was the return to work agreement and having um, each nurse return, each striking nurse have the right to return to their previous position that they held before the strike, which is the, the standard, how all strikes are ended once you come to a conclusion with the employer and there's is an agreement and there should be a healing process. You return to, you, you return to your job. Um, and when we uh, found out in August that that didn't seem to be, that wasn't going to happen easily, uh, that, that another war was kind of going on there. Um, that, that was the last, that, that's what the last four, four months or so of the strike, it did not have to happen that way, but we were able to stand together um, and in solidarity and say, no, if, 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 if all of us are not going back in, then we're not going back in. <laughs> we're not going to be turning our back on our own um, colleagues and union members. And um, that was what, um, on December 17th, that was what pushed it over the goalpost. That that agreement came, we finally were able to achieve that. Every striking nurse has the right to go back to their exact same position, shift hours, title, 
Um, and that was, uh, that sealed the deal. Uh, we, we had been wanting to get back into that building to care for our patients for months and months. And that was, that was the huge victory for nurses, patients, our community, but really for all, um, for all of organized labor um, and very humbling to go through this process yeah. to get it done. Yeah. Have either of you been back to work yet or do you know when you're going back? If not, um, we just started the recall process now. All of the, all of the nurses, the letters just went out this uh, January eighth, so this Saturday. So there's a whole process of seven. We have seven days to respond, and mm-hmm. they have scheduled some reorientation sessions. That whole process is starting this week. But my date, um, I believe, is my date is going to be um, January twenty fourth. And I'm hearing from a lot of people in the building, peace, nursing assistants secretaries, uh, you know, our, our other staff members besides uh, nurses, you know, they're really, they're, they're just waiting for us to come back overjoyed. I've been, you know, getting, I got a lot of calls last night, really emotional. So really can't wait to get back and see our, see our people as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some lessons from this strike, um, which I think is the longest nurses strike in Massachusetts history and certainly the longest one um, in the country, I think in quite a while, um, that other nurses and also people who work outside of hospitals and outside of healthcare um, can take from their from this for their own struggles. Marie, sure. You, you know, it's it's a it's a huge undertaking to um, propose a strike for for any group of workers, but especially for nurses. Um, so. It, it was clear to us that our working conditions were not going to improve. We did everything we could inside the building. Um, and the ultimate step was to withhold our labor. It, it became easier to do that when nurses finally did realize after the first surge that if we didn't stand up to protect ourselves and our patients, no one would. Um, we worked for an employer that received you know, billions of dollars, literally, in stimulus money, CARES Act money. And instead of bringing hands to the bedside at a time when we needed them more than ever, they furloughed nurses. Uh, they withheld PPE and refused to sit down with us and um, discuss any conditions inside the building that were negatively impacting patients and nurses. So, you know, once once you get to that point and you understand where your bargaining unit is, it was a fairly easy decision because we knew if we didn't do that, things would continue to deteriorate. And we have the lives of people in our hands and and we have a responsibility to make sure that we can, um, you know, care for ourselves and our patients. Um, We received tremendous support from, you know, the labor community. Uh, from our legislators, uh, from our faith-based leaders. You know, we knew that we were on the right side of this. But the single most important thing in keeping a strike like that going is maintaining the solidarity. Um, and uh, we were able to do that with, you know, the, the 700 nurses that walked out. Not every day was wonderful, uh, but, but we were certainly um, uplifted by those people in our community. I mean, they held candlelight vigils for us, prayer vigils. Um, You know, the DSA was on the line all the time, trying to do things that kept our spirits up. 
um, you know, legislators coming to the line. But ultimately, it was the 700 nurses that, you know, stood tall and accepted the responsibility and um, maintained uh, the solidarity of uh, our picket line. Yeah. So I I will add that um, we, you know, you never really envision that a strike will be this long and how it will um, how it will proceed and how you're going to get through it. You know, you, you go out on strike the first day and, you know, you're hoping it's not going to be long and you're all, you know, you're geared up. But um, we really, I really learned through this strike that um, we really had to build a coalition kind of, and it just kind of happened naturally. Natural born leaders, um, younger nurses, older nurses, all a mix who haven't necessarily been on negotiating committees or held office uh, positions in the union just came forward naturally with their leadership ability. And we formed our own, uh, we were like a well-oiled machine. By the time we got a few months into it, we had uh, between our strike office, uh, manned by nurses, our picket line, um, we developed besides our committee, um, you know, to navigate a strike like this so long and against, um, you know, such a, a daunting task, a daunting opponent. Um, we really had, we, our own nurses stepped up to be, we had a whole system of what we call picket captains um, for each unit. It was amazing. I, I, I don't, I've never seen that before. I don't know if it's something we created ourselves or it just came together, but these nurses just came forward. There's about 25 of them from each area of the hospital and they would be an extension of the negotiating committee and they would maintain that picket line, make sure it was staffed. They would also help us get information out to our members. Even a, even a 15 member negotiating committee um, to navigate a strike with you know over 700 nurses for so long and communication is the key and keeping your line strong is the key. Um, and when you when you're out on strike that long, you know it's about holding each other up. It, it emotionally and physically, um, it really does you know it really does test every fiber of your being. And I I have been in awe every day when I would go to that picket line or even in the strike office, the the humanity and the strength that you see in nurses picking each other up, one's having a bad day and it's like, come to the line, we'll talk. Um, and nurses from all ages, like I said, who had may have not known each other, nurses who have who are 24 years old just starting out and nurses were on that line who you know, were, were planning on retiring before the strike, but decided to stand up. It was that important to stand with us when I saw nurses walking together who, who did not know each other, who had never worked in the same unit, and by by the time we were a couple of months or less into picketing, we were all one. There was no more division of I work in this unit, you I work that shift, um, I'm a new grad, I'm you know, I'm a senior nurse, I'm 35 years. We were just one. We found we found our stride and we found our support with one another. I I yeah, it's something that just it happened, and I don't think um, it's. I'm not sure you can put your finger on it, but that is really what maintained the strike. We got through one day. We got it through another day. It, it that is not a, um, you know, those are not just cliches. I know people think, but that one day longer, one day stronger. We literally sang it, talked about it. We lived it every single day. You know, an injury to one is an injury to all. That's what we did for ten months. We we made sure. You know clawing ourselves to the picket line. Sometimes you're running, I would say, sometimes you're running there like, yippee, I can't wait to get there. And some days you are crawling yourself, you know, out of bed to get to that picket line, but you know, your people are going to be there. So 
I always say, having a good day, come to the line. Having not such a good day, come to the line. Come to the line at any time, night or day. That's that's where you find your inspiration. That's how you get through one more day. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at it and you were talking about the first surge. Now we're in the, I don't know what number surge of, of COVID I'm actually, um, in isolation because I tested positive for COVID this week. Um, so we're in whatever level of, you know, COVID at this point, like, tell me what you're thinking about going back in, in this particular pandemic phase. I would just say about COVID, um, Yes, many of us have been working in at hospitals, vaccine clinics. I don't think that's um, the concern. What I've been thinking about during the strike is when when we had beds closed, when when tenant decided to close beds in August, and then um, the numbers have been just going up, you know, ever since even you know greater every week. Um, I just kept thinking to myself, you know, we need to get back into that building. I mean, our community now, you know, it not only Worcester County but the state of Massachusetts, and, and that just goes right across the country. If we have beds closed and we're not able to care for our patients. So I just feel like, you know, even though we have been caring for patients at other places, um, you know, our, our community um, who has given so much to us, they need us now. Our greatest strength now going back into the building is the solidarity, the unity, the interconnectedness of all of us. And I think we had that somewhat prior to the strike, because when you're building for a strike, I mean, communication is key. It's constant organizing day in and day out, knowing where your people are. Now we know each other very, very intimately. um, And we truly do care about each other even more than we did before. And areas that feed patients to the inpatient floors um, now understand when nurses there say, I cannot possibly take your patient. We're not going to be angry or upset. We're going to understand because that's the person that we just spent the last 10 and a half months with. And I think of that going in. I feel very hopeful going in that we're going to make this a smooth transition for us because we have a lot vested in it. Yeah. So there's one weird little side bit to this story, which is that one of the, uh, shall we say, permanent replacement nurses has apparently filed a petition to decertify the union and that this might be traceable to our good friends at the National Right to Work Foundation. Um, Do either of you want to say anything about that? It's it's disappointing, um, but I think at this point we are looking at it as... uh, an annoyance, but we take it seriously. Um, we, we have the overwhelming number of nurses in that building. You know, we will be coming back into that building. So I have every confidence uh, that the MA will be there today, tomorrow, next year, and a decade from now. Yeah, I think that I think that you always take something like this seriously. When you fought, we fought 21 years ago to unionize our facility with, you know blood, sweat, and tears back then, um, we have built one of the strongest bargaining units uh, in the state. Many of us have been there for decades. I have no worry that uh, we will not maintain our union rights, but I just find it very, the lack of integrity that um, there are many new grad nurses in that building. And I think this is just a, um, it's just a sign of the times of the, of the society we live in right now, where um, if people think that they see, you know, a vulnerable group that they can, um, 
that they can influence um, to gain something for themselves, um, whether it's money, power, um, they will try to do that. I think that's sad. You know, we want our union rights through hard work the right way. We use them very responsibly. We have a wonderful contract and we built, we built on that for over 21 years. And that's for the safety of our patients, not only just about nurses, but I, I could not imagine it's night and day. I've worked, we've worked when we've not had a union at St. Vincent Hospital. We worked as we've had a union and we fought for that. It's night and day. I was much, you know, much younger when we first unionized. And I realized very quickly when I graduated from nursing school that um, decisions weren't being made with the patient's best interest at heart. And, you know, we were very young and naive. It's like, oh, we don't have enough nurses. We, we can't give the patients the care they need. And really we were just pushed aside, you know, be a good, be a good little nurse, kind of like, you know, let's not forget this is a female dominated profession. People don't, you know, I, I never stray away from that. Okay. I love being a nurse and I, I love being a woman, but 92% of nurses are female. Um, that's just straight up how it is. Wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but that is something we have to navigate. Uh, we're up against something that male-dominated unions are not. Um, they Different tactics are used on female-dominated professions, the guilt, the intimidation, the shame, oh goodness, you know, you just need to take more patients, just keep taking them on, taking them on, because that, you know, that you that's your oath. But the oath is, you know, to do what's right for the patient, not, you know, to make sure they're safe. And sometimes that means standing up and having the voice. And you cannot do that without a union. Um, you will not have power to do that. There's no obligation by any employer years ago or in this day and age for sure when it's a, well, when it's a just a, a money-driven machine. That's what healthcare is today. It's sad to say, but you're, if you're in healthcare, no matter what position you hold, you can see that very clearly every day. And if nurses do not have the right to speak up legally without fear of retaliation or without fear of being their voices being diminished, just pushed aside, then patients are in danger. Um, the community's in danger. And that's that's the main reason. I mean, I unionization years ago was right for us. We knew that um, there's no other way to take care of patients properly. That was Marlena Pellegrino and Marie Ritaco of the Massachusetts Nurses Association, hospital nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. When we think about frontline essential workers during this pandemic, we often think about doctors, nurses, EMTs, but supermarket workers have been on the front lines this whole time too. And the reason they're overlooked is probably because they were being overlooked before the pandemic as well. A report from the Economic Roundtable looks at the experiences of more than 36,000 workers at Kroger stores in California, Washington, and Colorado. The group looked at a representative sample of the Kroger's workforce, which is spread across many chain stores. The study was commissioned by several locals of United Food and Commercial Workers. Among the findings were that nearly 8 in 10 workers are suffering from food insecurity and, quote, those with children report they go hungry to provide food and other essentials for their children. Kroger's workers' exceptionally high rate of food insecurity is seven times greater than the U.S. average, unquote. More than one in four of the very food insecure workers 
quote, are or recently have been homeless, unquote. In addition, workers reported being in a dangerous high-stress environment throughout the pandemic, which has subjected them to all sorts of abusive behavior from customers, along with exploitative conditions created by their employer, which has profited massively during the pandemic. On average, Kroger workers earn only about $30,000 a year, which Economic Roundtable says is, quote, $16,105 short of the annual income needed to pay for basic necessities required for the living wage, unquote. It's no wonder that about 8,700 Kroger's workers in Colorado just went on strike. Dan Flaming, president of the Economic Roundtable and co-author of the report, says Kroger workers are emblematic of how the supermarket industry contributes to inequality. So we surveyed about 37,000 Kroger workers in, in Southern California, Colorado, and uh, the Puget Sound region. And 28% respondents, that was over 10,000 folks responded to the survey. And what we learned from them is that they earn about a third less than a living wage. And this is because one, the wages are very low, and two, 60% are part-time, 65% are part-time. And so it's a combination of uh, not enough work and uh, low wages. Plus, these are on-demand workers, and so uh, just a small handful have other jobs. So the consequences of having low wages are that uh, 78% are food insecure. So these are grocery workers putting food on our table throughout the pandemic, and 78% are not food secure compared to 10% of the overall United States population. Uh, well, this is using a Department of Agriculture test. So that means they don't have balanced meals, they skip meals, sometimes food runs out before the end of the month, sometimes they're hungry. And we also found that um, 14% are homeless now or have been homeless in the past year. So that also is very disconcerting. Um, in terms of the COVID and the pandemic, um, the pandemic hasn't necessarily brought out the best in the American public. People have been anxious. They've been frustrated. They've been um, isolated. And these tangled threads play out in grocery stores, which are one of the few places that remained open throughout the pandemic. So um, most grocery workers report uncivil encounters, including uh, people not wearing masks, people not social distancing, people spitting on each other, people spitting on them, threats of violence, acts of violence, and all of this being handled by people on very low wages. They also report that um, the overriding objective of Kroger throughout the pandemic has been to maximize store sales rather than to protect the health of either workers or customers. And so when these difficult encounters with customers occurred, the preponderant reaction from managers was either to ignore it, that was most often, or in some cases to blame the worker rather than the customer. So um, Kroger has been on a long-term race to the bottom 
their profits have been increasing dramatically and their wages have been declining, uh, and particularly during the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic has been very profitable for Kroger. So they, they could afford to do better, and uh, they've chosen not to. And workplace turnover has increased quite a bit during the pandemic. Is that right? It's gone up about fourfold, and this is particularly among younger workers. Um, younger workers start out with very low wages and part-time jobs and uh, pretty bleak. So um, quite a few people have just hung up on, on, on working at Kroger, and this together with deliberate corporate policies has led to extreme understaffing in stores. And so the remaining workers have very strong complaints about being overworked and not being able to complete the work they're asked to do. How do these findings square with what we're hearing about um, a tight labor market or how workers um, may have more leverage in some sense, um, given that places do seem to be having a shortage of workers, including Kroger's. I'm not sure how many of these, particularly young workers who've quit, feel like they have abundant choices, but it does seem like their their tolerance threshold has uh, has has gone down. That they're they're not willing to put up with as much that there is widespread awareness that the CEO of Kroger makes 22 million a year, has gotten very large raises during the pandemic. Kroger is very profitable and it just seems like a burnout prospect for them, seems very bleak. So <clears throat> um, I think Kroger is one of a number of corporations that aren't treating workers equitably that are quite possibly trying to maintain a labor force that is economically desperate and compliant. So um, it's one of a number of corporations where we need to raise the wage floor. In terms of the recommendations that you have in the report for how to make Kroger a more sustainable workplace, do you want to talk about a few of the points that you bring up in the report? The recommendations include... Um, Raising the minimum wage to a living wage, which is about $880 a week uh, for workers. Um, to provide scheduling notice, at least a week's advance notice of schedule, and um, to pay overtime for time worked when there's less than that amount of advance notice. To, allow, to give uh, workers a 50% discount on any food that is sold in the store. Right now, it's just a 10% brand and only on Kroger items, which excludes produce and most meat and most dairy. I think possibly all dairy. Um, we're recommending that, that there be child uh, care subsidies for parents with children. And we're recommending that uh, Kroger workers be added to the board of directors of the Kroger Corporation. Currently, the union has, well, the union um, has a collective bargaining agreement, but uh, does not have any role in the actual corporate governance, right? That's correct. Are there any precedents for putting union members on the boards of, uh, of a supermarket company like this? 
Well, there are some food companies that are co-ops, so there's different modes of, of ownership. Um, but no, without, without government um, requirements, there probably wouldn't be workers on the Kroger board. We do recommend uh, public support for food co-ops in um, the food desert regions where Kroger and other grocery chains have uh, don't provide any groceries. So that would be a form of competition for these large chains. Right. Right. I mean, the I guess the overarching issue is that um, there's real power imbalance in our food system and the way supermarkets are run and the way they treat their workers is sort of a symptom of that. Absolutely. Um, any other findings that you want to highlight? Well, maybe just to say <clears throat> briefly that I think Kroger is a, is a, a defective uh, business model. It's, it's really not a business model that can support its labor force. And so, uh, you know, there is a fundamental challenge of restructuring the model so that it's sustainable for workers. That was Daniel Flaming, president of the Economic Roundtable. The comic book industry has been a bastion of union avoidance, even as other creative industries that overlap with it either have long been union, like film and television, where a lot of comic writers and comic stories end up these days, or the rest of the media and the art world, and even creative technology and video games, where we've seen a lot of interest in unions lately. As Gita Jackson at Vice wrote this fall when we first heard about the Image Comics Workers Union Drive, quote, the American comic book industry has existed in something like its current form for almost a century, and for all the ways it's changed, there are more in which it stayed the same. Most creative work is still done in a way that owes something to the factory line, most of it involves power fantasies of one sort or another, and the industry is mostly untouched by the labor movement. Even so, it can be startling to realize that Comic Book Workers United, or CBWU, is, as far as anyone can tell, the industry's very first union, end quote. Now those workers have officially won their union. In a 7-2 to two vote, yes, it is a small bargaining unit, the staff workers at Image, who include editorial, marketing, and payroll staff, voted to officially become the first members of Comic Book Workers United, which is an affiliate of the Communications Workers of America. Like many other workers whose organizing has stepped up recently, the image workers were motivated by layoffs during the COVID-19 pandemic. When image refused to voluntarily recognize the union, the workers went to election. Their demands have included, in the words of the union members, quote, job security, more time off, better hours, solid living wages, all of these things that relieve mental strain and allow for creativity to flourish. The oft-repeated sentiment of, well, suffering is worth it if you get great art out of it, is a harmful way to think about creative endeavors, CBWU said. It is notable that this effort took place first at Image rather than at the Big Two or an indie company. Image Comics is itself the result of a rebellion by industry workers, in this case, the artists and writers who wanted more ownership over the work they were making for Marvel and DC. As Jackson wrote, quote, superstar artists working for the traditional publishing duopoly of Marvel and DC, inspired in part by the creators' rights and self-publishing movements of the two immediately preceding generations, which included at one point a union drive led by legendary artist Neil Adams, wanted more control over their working conditions and intellectual property. When they didn't get it, they left and founded Image. All the comics it publishes were, and still are, owned by their creators, and Image works in concert with several artist studios that are autonomous companies. 
Essentially, rather than having creators work for it, Image works for creators, providing the services necessary to take a comic from an artist's desk to a store shelf, end quote. But of course, it still requires staff to make all of those things happen. So it's interesting that one of the demands by that staff is for, quote, a collective voting option to immediately cancel publication of any title whose creators have been found to have engaged in abuse, sexual assault, racism and xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, ableism, etc., end quote. At a publisher, which is in some ways not a publisher, which exists to give creatives free reign, this obviously isn't going to be an easy sell, but in an industry roiled by scandal in recent years, an industry which is still dominated by white men who are treated as both superstars and as expendable, it's easy to see why the behind the scenes workers who do the largely uncredited work of wrangling egos and making those egos passion projects possible might want some input and some protection from the behavior of their stars. All of those abuses are, of course, workplace issues. Finally, I should note my own connection to this story. In addition to having a few friends who have done comics for Image, I have contributed back matter essays to two comics published by Image. One of them, titled Cowl, was the story of a superhero labor union. The student workers at Columbia University finally ended a 10-week strike last week with a new tentative agreement for thousands of graduate and undergraduate student employees. The new four-year deal would provide a 6% raise for workers with annual contracts, boost hourly wages from $15 to $21 an hour, with incremental increases in the following years. Workers with annual appointments would receive about $43,000 per year at minimum, and those who are currently within 1% of the minimum salary level will receive retroactive compensation increases. The agreement would also expand eligibility for child care coverage and increase child care subsidies, while also extending parental leave provisions. In addition, there would be a $300,000 emergency fund that students could use to subsidize their health care costs. One of the most important items in the agreement is for cases of alleged discrimination and harassment. Workers would be entitled to seek third-party arbitration to get an independent review by an arbitrator with training on Title IX, the federal law that regulates sex discrimination in higher education. During negotiations, the union dismissed the administration's claim that Title IX regulations were incompatible with arbitration, pointing out that, quote, all other unions at Columbia University have meaningful access to labor arbitration for critical matters, including Title IX cases and other claims of discrimination or harassment, unquote. The strike was part of a flurry of labor actions on college campuses over recent months. Ever since the National Labor Relations Board opened a legal pathway to collective bargaining for student workers at private universities and colleges, and that was way back under the Obama administration, labor organizers have made gains in unionizing student employees at Columbia, Duke, Cornell, Harvard, University of Chicago, etc. The Columbia student workers were the ones who spearheaded the landmark NLRB case that led to the restoration of collective bargaining rights for student workers, reversing a long-standing Bush-era precedent. During this latest strike, the Columbia workers Workers were supported by a number of local lawmakers and a cohort of the Columbia faculty. Other higher education unions also turned out in the picket line in solidarity. The picketers blocked the entrance to the university on December 8th, following a message from Columbia Human Resources warning the workers that if they did not return to work by that Friday, they would not be guaranteed jobs last semester. The move was widely seen as an intimidation tactic. On the other side of Manhattan, New York University graduate workers also went on strike last April, resulting in a contract with a 50% wage hike, which also guaranteed sanctuary protections for undocumented students on campus. 
The fact that so many student workers have been striking in one of the cities hardest hit by the pandemic might speak to the level of uncertainty and unrest in higher education right now, especially as the pandemic has been used by some university administrators to justify austerity measures. The anxiety and angst is also percolating in K-12 schools as in-person schooling resumes amid another massive COVID-19 outbreak. We'll explore how the Chicago Teachers Union is coping with these pressures in our featured interview. As we enter year three of the pandemic, workers are being asked once again to keep working through a fresh surge in COVID-19 infections. Washington dealt public health two major blows in recent days. First, there was the Biden administration's relaxation of guidelines on testing and isolation, which has sowed fear and confusion as employers push workers to return to their jobs, even after being infected. And on Thursday, the Supreme Court blocked another important measure, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's mandate for vaccination or testing of employees at large firms. Meanwhile, politicians and employers keep trying to convince us that things can all go back to normal. So what role should the government be playing in protecting workers from the ongoing public health crisis? And now that much of the workforce is evidently being left to fend for itself, how should workers and communities deal with the risks of returning to work? We spoke with Debbie Berkowitz, a former senior official at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, about the government's failure to safeguard workers' health. First, we'll hear from Shian Barrett, a special education teacher in Chicago, about the recent standoff between the Chicago Teachers Union and Mayor Lori Lightfoot over returning to in-person schooling. We spoke the morning after the CTU reached a deal with the mayor that would bring the teachers back into the classroom. We are back in the buildings today as a part-time employee. Uh, I'm going to head in after this chat we're having now. Our children are still out until tomorrow. You know, for example, I just dropped my kid off uh, with a neighbor and I'm going to head in. The way it went down was uh, we received essentially a final offer from Chicago Public Schools, more specifically the mayor since she runs everything here. Uh, we're, we've got an unelected board and mayoral control. And um, the executive board voted it through, not overwhelmingly, about a 60% in favor rate. And then uh, the larger body, the House of Delegates, which is basically one union representative for each school or a few for the bigger schools, also went ahead and voted it through, meaning that they elected to stop the work action uh, to be remote. With that, uh, we, like I said, we are going in today, and then there will be a vote this evening of the full membership that will determine whether uh, we accept the terms of the contract or not. <laughs> what does the contract stipulate exactly? It's just no remote and everyone's going back? Like, are are there, like, how were the safety concerns addressed, if at all? We did get a number of safety, I'd say, adjustments uh, in writing. So, for example, they've promised to provide HN95 masks for every student and uh, faculty member, and they agreed to certain stipulations for turning a school to be remote temporarily while there's a outbreak at the school. I guess my concern and a lot of the people who voted no's concern is that 
in this negotiation, the mayor has not really been interested in following through on anything. And uh, in fact, a lot of the things that we were uh, going remote on were things that had been promised previously in February and again in September. And so uh, the concern is that they'll sign a piece of paper, get us back in schools, and then nothing will change. Um, this morning, we're already getting, you know, not not overwhelmingly, but a couple schools who should be going remote according to the metric and the the principals are saying that people can file a grievance if they want. So that's a little bit concerning that, a lot concerning that we haven't even ratified the contract and it's already being broken. Is it unusual that um, that there is this seeming rift, I guess, between the leadership and rank and file members? No, I mean, uh, I think this may sadden some people uh, who follow Chicago labor closely, but I think uh, what I would say is our group, uh, Caucus of Rank and File Educators, that uh, won the surprise election in 2010 and has been in power since then, um, is particularly strong at uh, fighting directly with actions and uh, within the media. But in my tiny opinion as one person who's often been at the bargaining table or hearing the direct updates on the executive board, uh, there's sometimes a lack of ability to close. And so it's, it's over 2012, uh, 2016, where we uh, settled in the middle of the night and had school the next day, 2019 strike. These are all times that the membership was not particularly happy with the outcome. And I understand that in labor situations, part of the struggle is that we as workers are always hoping for more. Um, but I think I'm concerned that the city leadership has learned that if they wait us out, they're still getting paid and they can simply say no until we concede. When you said earlier that you were you saw that things were still dangerous, um, can you expand on that a little and talk about the conditions that drove uh, the union to take the initial action in calling for remote learning? Sure. I want to start by saying that um, I teach at, uh, my partner's on leave from, and my daughter attends the same school. And it's a working class school in Little Village, um, very progressive school, 90% plus low income, 97% plus uh, students of color. And what that means is it being a progressive school, we've got a strong administration. It's the first time I've ever seen that in CPS schools and conditions tend to be better at our school. We still have a lack of resources, but there's a lot more interaction with the community. So things tend to be a bit better at our school than a random school from segregated Latinx or uh, black neighborhoods in Chicago. When I went in, so we didn't, we held our daughter out Monday and Tuesday before the labor action, before the vote. I had to stay home and take care of her and a neighbor on the Monday, but I went in the Tuesday. And what we saw was uh, 
half of my students out, four out of nine. I teach uh, special education self-contained. So these are um, smaller classes because the needs of the students are in terms of uh, instructional support or uh, assistive technology are higher. So four out of nine students were out, at least a couple with COVID, the others with COVID in their families. And then of the five that were there, two shared that they had COVID in their families, but were sent in anyway. Zero out of the nine had uh, masks that are effective against uh, the, I don't even know, I have only seen it in print, but the Omicron uh, variant. We still had lunch, maskless lunch in a, you know, relatively crowded cafeteria. We still had, uh, our care room was overcrowded. Some students with milder symptoms were sent back to class. So I, I really felt, I, I was in a, you know, face shield, HN95 masks. I passed out masks that fit them to the students. It's the first time in the pandemic they've had uh, HN95s that fit them. So as educators, we're doing our best, but it, it seemed very scary. Oh, the school is providing that gear? No, uh, this was all bought out of pocket. Wow. The, the school has surgical masks, but they've been shown to be ineffective against Omicron. So, Do Chicago schools have a vaccine mandate for students? Um, no. In fact, that was one of the things in the negotiations that the city leadership would not even discuss was a vaccine mandate. So we were pushing for um, opt-out testing rather than an opt-in, meaning that it would be assumed that two announcements have to go home to parents with a form that they can sign to opt their child out of testing. Um, but otherwise, students would be enrolled. And the mayor rejected that, saying that um, that was a uh, violation of parent rights, despite the fact that that's done pretty much everywhere else that has a testing program. I guess you won't know until tomorrow when the students are back in, but how is this operating on the school level? I, I imagine that if um, if people do end up going uh, going back into the school buildings en masse and resuming class as normal, then uh, it, will, it may be left up to individual teachers to try to negotiate better protections with their uh, administrators, or, um, or is there any sort of latitude that you have there? The agreement that we're voting on did uh, strengthen the safety committees and ensure that a uh, majority of the members of the safety committee in any school are from the union, um, give the safety committee some powers to vote um, about the necessity to, to flip to uh, remote. The, the challenge there is that despite the efforts of individual educators and unionists in the buildings, the strength of the uh, safety committees differs greatly from building to building. And CPS has put a lot of energy and resources into teaching administrators to get around these types of committees. So for example, uh, if you have to have 50 plus one, a majority of uh, union members on it, uh, an administrator might try to affect the political process so that one or more of their allies um, within the building are on there uh, and kind of shift that majority. So we're, we're not 
we're not alone in the way that many uh, educators around the country are uh, if they do not have a strong union. Um, but by no means are we protected, especially across the hundreds of buildings. So this is all happening um, against the backdrop of these new CDC guidelines that seem to generally kind of loosen um, the criteria for returning to work, and they've been heavily criticized. Um, I guess in light of um, what's happening on the policy level nationally, and I guess in the city of Chicago as well, what would you say to other workers, uh, particularly education workers, as well as to students and their families in terms of how to navigate new rules that seem less protective overall and how they cope with the current situation if they are being pressured to return to work? I think uh, we have to start with some radical acceptance in terms of what the reality is and then make strong decisions and and organize to do it collectively. Um, In terms of initiating this action in the first place, I think we've been a good model for that in Chicago. Um, I think one thing that's happening nationwide is that educators have tended to be a different class than the majority of the students they're serving nationally. And that's not true everywhere. I mean, there are places where teachers are paid so poorly that they're very clearly working class. But I think we're at this point where we're facing the exact decisions that um, most workers are facing every day, which is, do you go into a hostile work environment and accept that? Or do you risk your family getting kind of capsized by the forces of capitalism, right? So what I would say is that let's be honest about the fact that this represents the current administration choosing to endanger workers and students uh, for the political goals that they have. If you look at the way that this whole thing in Chicago is operated, the national commenters and the, the current administration are not particularly interested in the conditions in our buildings. Um, they're not interested in the fact that the mayor and her appointees have said that they're using data from before Omicron was even on the scene. They're not interested in the fact that students whose parents have elected to keep them home for safety reasons are denied education currently in Chicago. Um, and I think, as is often the case, workers, we have each other, right? And that's that's the extent of it. And so I can't tell anyone in their situation, you need to go without pay in this society for an extended period. What I do want to urge everyone to consider is that we have to choose based on the realities. And so if you're sending your child into a building, you are taking a substantial risk that they could get sick and suffer extended ill effects from the virus. And you're running a risk that they could, um, especially with with us, with multi-generational families, they could uh, end up bringing home the thing that ultimately kills their loved one, you know? And that's something we've already been facing in this community in Chicago. And it's something that has been utterly ignored by the people in charge. There's not even a acknowledgement that 
we have students in our classrooms who have lost one or both primary caregivers in their lives. I've, I have a student myself who, uh, former student, he's still in the school who was orphaned by um, the first wave of coronavirus. So, and the, the, the communications coming from the mayor to parents have said that, and the, the CEO appointed by the mayor who heads the district have said that, you know, the union is stirring up hysteria among parents and, you know, people are anxious and irrational. And to say that to people who've lost one or more loved ones to the very thing that we're facing right now is, you know, beyond wrong. It's, it's sort of unconscionable. Can I add one last thing? Yes, go ahead. I do want to share that last night after the um, House of Delegates voted, um, I did receive texts from two different uh, newer members of the union who were asking how to set up a radical action group. And so I think it's important to remember that the forces that are attacking our communities right now are consistent and they, they, they hit us in waves the same way that, you know, the pandemic has. And so we can choose in these moments to despair or we can choose to organize. And there's not a correct answer there. If we need to take a minute to despair, that's, that's very human. And then we need to reach out to each other, our colleagues, not just in our own workplaces, but fellow workers and, get to organizing again. That was Sheehan Barrett, special education teacher in Chicago and member of the Chicago Teachers Union. And now here's Debbie Berkowitz, who spoke just before the Supreme Court handed down its ruling against the employer vaccine mandate. Well, I appreciate CDC's concern about the economy and getting people back to work. I also think it's really important to look at some of the facts, and that is a lot of industries, especially industries that have seen outbreaks of COVID over the last year and a half, um, are having a very hard time finding workers because they don't believe the workplace is safe. And I think CDC's guidance by allowing infected workers to go back to work after five days without having to wear like an N95 or a KN95 really quality mask and making it clear they can't eat lunch with anybody, they should be in their cars when they eat lunch, and not requiring any kind of testing um, before they go back, you know, could really contribute to Omicron even spreading, you know, more rapidly within the workplace. And the new CDC guidance it's been criticized by a lot of public health experts, um, primarily the part about not requiring testing in order to return back to work. I guess I'm a little puzzled by the decision not to require testing. Is it simply that the government doesn't think there is enough testing capacity, so it would uh, not be effective to uh, require that, or it would be too much trouble to uh, expand the availability of tests that much? Or is it sort of like they don't want to be burdened by the uh, like ethical dilemma that would be created by knowing how many people are testing positive and then also returning to work? My guess is that they feel there may not be enough tests around given how many people are testing positive. But then I feel like they should be honest about that and said, we think you should all test 
remember these are guidelines these aren't rules but um that are that are mandates are required but it would be best for CDC to recommend that if you can get a test, get a test before you go back out, a rapid test. Um, I think that would have been important. And they could have said very honestly, right now, we're not sure how easy it is to get a test for this. So, you know, I, I wish they had been more honest, but I, you know, do think that, um, they could have gone farther. They could have also recommended N95 and KN95 masks, which are so easy to get, and you can get them online. Employers can get them, and employers can provide them, but they didn't do that. One of the interesting sort of knock-on effects of the new CDC guidance seems to be that um, both Walmart and Amazon, you know, two of the biggest private employers in the country, have just shortened their paid leave time just to match the new guidance. Um, I guess that that's to be expected, but what do you make of that? That they're sort of uh, not only, not only, you know, getting workers back to work faster, but, um, you know, cutting off one of the key uh, benefits that workers were relying on. Right. For those workers, it's really going to incentivize them to come back to work after five days, whether they have symptoms or not. I mean, I know a lot of people with COVID now that have gotten the Omicron and they've been sick for like eight or nine days. And, you know, to have workers that were just infected back to work after five days when we know that they're still infectious and that, you know, they have like a 30% chance of infecting others and they could be working very closely with other people or the public. Um, you know, this is really, I think, sort of a, a dangerous recommendation without you know, in addition of testing or putting on some really good masks. On the other hand, you know, I have spent a lot of my career working for low wage workers who have absolutely no paid sick leave at all. And I sort of feel like this um, guidance is going to really make these employers double down on getting workers back as soon as they can, even if they test positive. There was a notable expansion of, um, of emergency paid sick leave um, uh, in the initial legislative response to the pandemic. Um, what is the status of that now? Um, are workers, have workers just lost those or um, uh, is it f- like floating around in another legislative proposal that hasn't been picked up yet? That specific proposal was for small businesses. I think it was under 500 employees and I think that was part of the first CARES Act, and I don't think it's part of the current act that's out there now. Um, I, you know, most of the workers that we talk to and work with work for large companies, you know, like Tyson's Foods or Kroger's, and in the food industry, like Tyson's and JBS, Pilgrim's Pride, you know, the people that bring you your meat and your poultry. Um, or Mount Air, there is no paid sick leave. And in fact, if you if workers take a sick day, they can get penalized for taking a sick day. So there's always been this undercurrent during the pandemic of low wage workers being having to almost go back to work, um, even when they're sick, which led to even more um, or greater spread of COVID in the workplace. And so I think now by CDC shortening the quarantine and the isolation times, um, 
without any other layered mitigation measures on top of it, that, you know, it could make things worse in the workplace for um, workers, especially unvaccinated workers. Yeah, actually, yeah, I do remember uh, the CARES Act um, sort of carving out uh, large employers, like sort of maybe ironically under the assumption that because there are larger employers, they're more likely to already be offering paid sick leave or something. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the the Bureau of Labor Statistics has found that a lot of large employers do offer some number of days of paid sick leave, but then there are whole industries of the low-wage large employers that do not. And, you know, these large employers, you know, that, that are more on the sort of low-wage end of things, most of their workers are um, are Black or Brown or immigrant workers um, who really have suffered the brunt of the severe health consequences of COVID as well. And um, so they don't seem to be able to partake in these kinds of protections that a lot of, you know, of other workers um, can access. Right. And obviously um, they're not part of the um, minority of the workforce that was able to work remotely throughout this pandemic. And so there's uh, many, <laughs> many different tiers of inequality at work here. Um, can you uh, put, well, can you put the the current situation with Omicron um, in context with the with the backdrop of the Supreme Court hearing that happened today, and um, what that what that case means for um, the workers who uh, are currently um, being perhaps pressured to go back to work, or um, or are at um, employers that would have been subject to the uh, the mandate that the Biden administration had issued earlier. Yeah, sure. So. Sort of shockingly, um, OSHA, who um, is the you know only agency that can regulate worker safety and health in the federal government and actually regulates it for all the states. There are 20 states that have their own state-run OSHAs, but they rely on federal OSHA and they adopt federal OSHA regulations, and then they they do the enforcement. That you know, they were never able to come up with any requirements for employers to protect workers. And when they finally did come up with a requirement um, this November um, and issued it as an emergency temporary standard, and this was really in reaction to the Delta variant, which and now we have the new variant, we have Omicron. And they decided that the most effective and easiest way for employers to protect workers. And this standard only applies to large employers of 100 or more workers is for employers to assure that their workers are vaccinated or that they're tested and and wear a mask. And the standard also requires uh, the employer to give time off for workers to get vaccines so that workers can access that. And the standard also requires that if somebody tests positive you can't bring them right back into the workplace. You have to follow the new CDC guidance. And this would be the only protections, the only mandate for any employer in the whole United States to protect workers and from COVID. And of course, it's only for the larger employers. And um, it was challenged um, and stayed by the Fifth Circuit. It was challenged by the Liberty Justice Center. 
which uh, is a group out of Illinois. It's a very conservative um, sort of, I would say it's an anti-worker rights, anti-worker power uh, organization that have gone after um, unions, especially public sector unions. They've never been involved in worker safety before, but they found a client, a small supermarket company with 500 workers in the South who challenged the rule. The, the Fifth Circuit stayed the rule immediately, but then the Sixth Circuit um, because there were so many challenges, this may be hard for me to actually explain to everybody, but there was a challenge in almost every circuit in this in the United States, in the courts. And then there was a lottery that the Sixth Circuit should actually hear the case, not the Fifth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit, in a bipartisan decision, a uh, Bush-appointed judge, as well as um, a judge appointed by Obama, lifted the stay. So the standard went back in effect at the end of December but then it was challenged by employers and industry. And that's what the Supreme Court heard today. And, you know, from listening to the arguments, um, you know, I think a lot of the justices really in their heart of hearts seem to be willing to uh, deny workers the protections that they legally and constitutionally are afforded by the Occupational Safety and Health Act and just saying this is an overreach and we are going to stay this standard. Even the chief justice seemed to indicate that if this wasn't an overreach, that states should be the ones to decide how employers protect workers when that's never been the case in the history of this of this country. Um, and, you know, since 1970, the federal government, OSHA, in the, with the legislation that was signed by Richard Nixon has had the responsibility to assure workers are protected. You know, there was, I mean, I thought um, there were some great arguments. Um, Justice Breyer said, are we really saying here that we are going to lift the requirement to protect workers when you have almost three quarters of a million worker of people getting sick Every day, hospitalizations are reaching their peak. Are we really now, are you really asking the court to just say workers don't need to be protected? There needs to be no protections out there. So I think, you know, the justices, you know, Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan were really taken aback by a lot of the arguments that were being made. And you know, I, I, I do, you know, somebody tweeted recently that maybe the Supreme Court justices should really either go to work in a meatpacking plant or a supermarket where there's no mask and you don't know if workers are vaccinated or unvaccinated, no testing and see, you know, how safe they feel. Yeah, it would it would be interesting to see the uh, see the justices working, uh, working on the assembly line. But uh, it, it does speak to uh a sort of disconnect between um, the perception of what workers' reality is and what workers are actually experiencing on the ground. Um, I, I just want to interrupt to add one more thing that I just wanted to say that the Supreme Court, the justices are all vaccinated and they have a requirement that if you're going to argue in front of them, you have to take a test. And if you are positive, you can't argue. And so one of the attorneys 
I saw tested positive and couldn't wasn't allowed into the court and had to um, argue, you know, through uh, Zoom or remote technology. But even more, when uh, the other attorneys who had tested negative were in the court, they had to wear an N95 or a KN95. So the justices were terrified of being exposed at work from COVID. And so they protected themselves. But of course, you know, they don't want to extend those protections to anybody else. Oh, boy. Um, So... In terms of what will ultimately happen, I mean, the I don't know when the Supreme Court will ultimately make its decision, but um, if it does extend the stay, then what happens to the guidelines? Could this drag on for months and months? Um, will there ultimately be a ruling? Uh, I guess will it get? I, I assume it'll get punted back to a lower court, uh, and then there'll be an ultimate ruling on it. How will that play out? Yeah, and it could drag out for a long time. And remember, this was an emergency temporary standard that OSHA promulgated on November 5th. That's just in effect for six months. So my guess is by the time it goes back down to the Sixth Circuit, who will hear the case if it gets, you know, funded back down there, and then it'll work its way right back to the Supreme Court. It'll take three or four months, and workers will be completely unprotected. We'll have like three new variants by that time or something. But Right. It's, it, you know, I was an official at OSHA during the Obama administration. So COVID, you know, is, happens in March 2020. And we're hearing about, first we heard about, of course, healthcare and hospitals and exposure there. And we wanted OSHA immediately to issue an emergency standard that, you know, hospital workers have to have N95s and because they were the highest risk, but there was a shortage of N95s. And so the Trump administration decided, I'm not, we're not issuing any regulations, nothing. And the American Hospital Association lobbied very hard against that. Then it started spreading in meatpacking and poultry and supermarkets and restaurants. And, you know, industry started closing, but those that didn't close, workers were dropping like five. They were getting sick and they were dying. We just found out like in just five meatpacking companies, 60,000 workers had tested positive just in the first year. And that's just sort of like, you know, 60% of the the industry. It's not even the whole industry. And there were no requirements that they had to have a mask or six feet apart, or then the vaccines came in, no requirement that people were unvaccinated, that they still had to wear a mask or be tested. There was, you know, sort of no requirements. And I remember thinking back then in March and April, of course, OSHA should issue a standard. That's what we would have done under the Obama administration. I mean, of course, this is what OSHA does. This is why OSHA was created to, um, you know, Imposed and the OSHA standard on vaccines or testing is really a minimum. It is a floor. That's what OSHA does. Is it sets a floor? States could always do more. So it's so shocking to me that the agency didn't do anything and now is not allowed. It may not be allowed to do anything. It's just a, a whole rewriting of the whole system of worker protection, which is very weak. So like if you're in a workplace right now and your employer isn't giving you a mask and you're working right next to somebody who's coughing in your face, you can't sue your employer for dangerous conditions. You get sick, you can't sue your employer, um, even if they're negligent. So it's a little bit scary uh, for workers out there. <laughs> during the At least during the first year of the pandemic, there were a number of workplaces in which OSHA complaints were filed, right? 
there wasn't a mandate in place then, what were they simply just invoking OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act in general, to try to hold their employers accountable? Or I guess, is there any legal recourse under the existing set of OSHA rules that workers could use? Not really. I mean, OSHA got thousands and thousands and thousands of complaints and did no inspections and just closed the complaints. There were a handful, three or four or five meatpacking plants that they finally cited after so many workers died from COVID um, using the general duty clause of the law that has a tremendous burden of proof for OSHA without a specific standard to say they just violated their general obligation under the law to provide a safe workplace. And OSHA really has to show that people died or like thousands got sick. Um, And they were able to do that in just a couple of plants, but the companies contested those citations. Um, And, you know, not much has happened. And that's just a handful. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of meat and poultry plants that did not have any obligation. So, um, you know, in hospitals, OSHA did issue an emergency temporary standard in June requiring certain respirators, requiring them to give pay time off if you're sick um, with COVID, you know, requiring um, certain triage so that minimize employee exposure to patients who were infected. And that was in place for six months and it just um, disappeared about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So now even hospitals and healthcare workers are left with none of these protections and they're at the highest risk. Was OSHA in a position to renew that set of guidelines or, or no? Well, we feel OSHA was in the position that they should not have abandoned that standard, um, actually. And then uh, the nurses union, the teachers, the AFL-CEO have sued OSHA to sort of put that rule back in place for um, healthcare uh, employers. And I want you to know that emergency temporary standard was not contested by any employer at all. Yeah, right. I think I heard the National uh, Federation of Independent Business uh, on NPR the other day arguing that um, OSHA did not have um, have the jurisdiction to issue that mandate and also that it should be done by Congress. Is that an argument that was heard before the Supreme Court today? Yes, that was the argument. The NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, they were the ones representing all the people opposed to the law, as well as, I think, the attorney general from Ohio. And their whole argument, which is very scary for those of us that are in the field of worker safety and health or care about the environment or anything else that the government does, was that there's no way that, you know, Congress, when they enacted the OSHA law, when they even talked about the kinds of protections that OSHA could put in, like immunizations, but there's no way that Congress could have ever envisioned OSHA to issue a standard that would require vaccines or testing, and that that was, um, you know, way beyond the scope of the law. But the truth is, the facts are the exact opposite. OSHA regulates, you know, Bloodborne infectious diseases like AIDS and hepatitis B 
and that they require testing. And it's not just in healthcare. It's wherever workers are exposed to bloodborne pathogens. And in fact, I remember the dentist challenged that back in the early 90s um, and said, OSHA can't do this. This is, again, way beyond what what Congress said that OSHA could regulate in terms of workplace hazards, but it was upheld. And even more, um, I don't think you'd see a dentist without wearing gloves right now in the United States. I mean, as soon as the dentist started complying with it, they were like, oh yeah, this is a really good thing. So yes, this is a very, and this is the argument put forward by the Liberty Justice Center, was that this is an unconstitutional um, act by OSHA to do this. And the truth is, it's not. OSHA is totally within its bounds to issue this regulation. I mean, they probably should have issued a regulation back last March requiring masking and social distancing. Right. And then there's a parallel argument that says that this is something that states should take up. There have been states that have, uh, that have, I guess, um, stepped in, um, in the absence of a clear OSHA standard, um, is that some? Is that another effective channel? Um, you know, given that the federal government may have its hands tied here. Actually, it's not at all. Yes, when federal OSHA failed, um, because the law says if federal OSHA issues a regulation, the states are all preempted from regulating worker safety. But since OSHA did nothing under the Trump administration. A lot of states moved to put in requirements for workplaces. And a lot of these states didn't even have Department of Labor, you know, or OSHAs to enforce it. They just put in protections and hoped employers complied. Some states had Department of Labor's or had worker safety agencies for public employees. Some states were state OSHA plans, but only about 13 or 14 states did this out of 50. And so what you get is you, you get a system where if you've got a governor and a legislature that really believe in protecting workers and know this is good for workers, good for employers and good, you know, for the economy, they'll issue protections. And then three quarters of the country, workers have no protection. Like, how does that make any sense when you have um, a pandemic and a virus that's spreading in the workplace? If you look at the statistics, there are so many outbreaks, over 50, 60, 70% of outbreaks in, in the states that are publishing their data are all work-related. They're happening in the workplace. So we're better to try to sort of get a handle on mitigating the spread of Omicron than just a very basic requirement of testing and vaccinating and or vaccinating. So what you would have, what the justices are basically saying is, you know, you know, there, we don't need to have a federal minimum here. If the states want to regulate, fine. If the states don't want to protect workers, that's fine too. But that's how you got OSHA is because there was no federal, there was no requirement for employers to provide a safe workplace. And most states didn't require it at all. And so you had, you know, skyrocketing work-related deaths and illnesses. And that's when Congress came in and said, well, then we need federal OSHA to at least start a minimum. Like it's like the minimum wage, right? Yeah. And um, states have, as you mentioned, even less of an infrastructure to handle this than uh, even OSHA does, which is already pretty paltry. Right. Yeah. It would take OSHA 150 years or more, I, I guess now, to inspect every workplace under its jurisdiction just once. Right. We'd be on like, you know, our fifth pandemic by then. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
And um, so I guess it, what's bizarre about the, the, you know, the business associations arguments is that, um, you know, given that one of their, one of their arguments is that, you know, the economic burden is too great and businesses are struggling with hiring and that this would only, you know, limit them further. But if the source of all of these economic woes and the problems with the workforce are related to the pandemic, then why, why isn't it in like the business's interest to actually um, try to get a handle on outbreaks in the workplace and help curb this so that we can be, we can, um, you know, fix, <laughs> fix the pandemic and then our economic problems related to the pandemic would be resolved. That's a brilliant question. And, you know, when we were at OSHA, we always said safety pays, right? You protect your workers and you're going to save money and your business can thrive. But I think a lot of companies and there are certain very right wing um, business organizations. And you don't see, by the way, the Chamber of Commerce or the National Association of Manufacturers who usually contest OSHA regulations because they're too costly stepping up here and being part of this challenge. It's really a um, an ideological battle here by employers that don't want to step up and protect workers, that, that just don't believe that that's part of what they, they, they want or need to do. And I think you point to a real irony here, and that is that the reason you have the great quick and the great resignation, you know, going on in so much of the industry with retail, restaurants and others is because workers feel it's unsafe and why jeopardize their life to earn a paycheck. And that this standard, if businesses implemented a vaccine or testing requirement, more workers would feel better and come back to work. In fact, the retail industry was part of um, the original industries fighting against the standard back in the Fifth and the Sixth Circuit. They didn't argue this time in front of the Supreme Court, but they were opposed to it. And um, I, I believe it was the head of, of Macy's who said, well, we're all for vaccines. We know vaccines work, but we need to hire all these temporary workers right now over Christmas and we're too scared if we say to them, we're going to have to test them or they have to be vaccinated by January 4th, that they won't come to work and we won't be able to sort of, you know, sell all our products. But the truth is that so many people have left the industry, the retail industry, because they feel unsafe and that these measures would have actually helped them retain workers. And of course, now we're in January, we're over the Christmas rush. Um so there really is no excuse anymore. I, I do find that whole argument that workers won't come back to work or they'll quit if they have to be tested once a week or vaccinated. I just uh, don't find that to be at all ringing true here. I think it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. What we, you know, Sarah and I have been, uh, we're interviewing workers throughout 2020 um, about, uh, you know, what, what was making them afraid at work. And to, to a person, it was, you know, generally uh, that they were afraid of their coworkers. They were afraid that they're going to get sick from work. It wasn't that they were afraid of, you know, a vaccine mandate or having to take a test. Yeah. Or wear a mask. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's probably a very small and vocal minority that would be, but then they can go figure out places 
to work with that's outside, that's exempt from the OSHA standard or telework like, you know, other people. And um, when the mandates were in place in healthcare facilities, um, it's not like, like, you know, tons of nurses and doctors were resigning in protest over the mandate. No, that's true. I mean, a couple of things. One is Tyson Food has a vaccine mandate, and we haven't seen like a massive quit <laughs> from employees at all. And in fact, um, you know, the union, which is organized part of Tyson's, you know, you know, negotiated for some paid sick leave and things like that, you know, uh, for for vaccinated workers. Um, so you didn't see a massive quit. And also, even before the pandemic, Tyson's had trouble getting workers. So actually knowing that other workers are vaccinated is an incentive to sort of think about working there. And then there was a hospital in Houston that required all their workers to get vaccinated. And a very small percentage of those of those workers quit. I know that Starbucks is now requiring workers to get vaccinated or tested, and I don't see any mass resignations uh, happening because of that requirement. It may be because of other requirements like uh, working conditions or, or wages, but certainly right. not this. Well, there was just recently a you know a walkout at a Starbucks um, protesting over you know, poor safety conditions at work. So might be, yeah, it's, it's uh, like, like you said, that, um, that it's the, it's the lack of safety um, that is driving workers away. <laughs> right. It's true. I mean, the thing that is really also absent from a lot of the discussion in the Supreme Court is the power in the workplace so that employers rule the workplace. They're the boss. They're the king. It's not like work is like in the Supreme Court can say, well, I'm a Supreme Court justice, so I want to make sure everybody's vaccinated and I want you to wear a mask if you're coming to talk to me. Workers don't have that right. So if OSHA doesn't set a requirement that all employers have to meet, then workers are left on their own. They're powerless, really. I mean, some unions have been able to get in place vaccine or testing requirements. And also think of disabled workers and workers that are, um, you know, have issues with their are immunocompromised, you know, and they're in the workplace. And there may be unvaccinated workers who are not tested um, coming in who could be in, very infectious and they're in danger. So it's really... You know, I think just what I've heard from the Supreme Court is um, the conservative justices, those that were appointed by Republicans, just seem to have a sense that, you know, not their problem, that, you know, workers somehow will will figure it out to be protected. But that's just not the way uh, it works in the workplace. Yeah, Um I mean, and not just workers with disabilities, but, you know, older workers too, right? I mean, um, there are a lot of workers, you know, over 65 who are, you know, working frontline jobs. So, Yeah, exactly. And I, that's my cohort here <laughs> out yeah. in the workplace. No, I, I you know, I was uh, recently testified at a hearing before the wonderful Representative Clybourne's um, subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis and a on, on meatpacking and poultry uh, during the first year of the, the, the crisis and how the industry just refused to let the public or even workers know just the extent of outbreaks in their facilities so that workers can figure out how to protect themselves. And one of the young attorneys that came in to testify with me, her parents were packing house workers and they had retired and they came in and they were telling me just about you know, just how many of 
meatpacking workers who are older in like their age, just sort of step back from the industry during the first basically year, year and a half of the pandemic, because it was just way too dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court justices are all are all in that cohort too, right? They have they have protections. Um, but um, the uh, I was going to ask. Speaking of unions, uh, you noted that some uh, some unions had managed to um, engage in collective bargaining over um, pandemic related mandates and standards. Um, is that sort of the the last best hope that workers have that through organized labor, um, they can actually have some leverage over their employers when they don't want to have these protections in place? Yeah, unfortunately, I wish more unions, more workers were unionized. It's only about 7% of uh, private sector but, you know, I live here in uh, right on the border between Washington and Maryland, and there's a United Food and Commercial Workers Union local that represents all the supermarkets. And they've been fabulous, just like they've been in Los Angeles and Chicago and other places where the union is very strong in New York. And they demanded right away that employees wear masks, that six feet apart. And, you know, they've been very good at getting our local city council to put back in a indoor mask mandate. So, you know, I do think where workers are unionized and have a collective voice, they can get some better protections. Um, but that's 7% of the whole workforce there. And, uh, right, it'll take a lot more union organizing before we can, <laughs> we can, we can manage to make unions, you know, the key sort of bulwark of workplace safety for the majority of the workforce. Fortunately, it's not the case right now. Do you have any advice for individual workers? Um, you know, if they don't have a union, then what could they possibly do if they're faced with an employer who is resisting uh, taking even the most basic precautions amid this new surge in infections? I think if there are outbreaks in their workplace or if COVID is spreading, they need to get that word out, that that has to get out to public health officials. And we're sort of back to where we were, where local health departments can come in and start closing down different workplaces until they protect workers. But also they um, should once again file OSHA complaints immediately if there are, I know there's no specific standard, but I think we just have to sort of let the government know, let the press know. And you don't want to, you know, have to jeopardize your health or sacrifice your health for a paycheck. And, um, you know, if it gets too dangerous, you know, move away and let it be known, get out there, tweet, you know, publicize what you did and what your employer did or did not do. I think it's really time that we held employers who are endangering workers, we held them accountable. Yeah. As with a lot of these workplace issues, um, sadly, workers have to sort of rely on the power of public shaming, I guess, to, uh, to sometimes compel their bosses to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's all they have, because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was so stunned that OSHA didn't do anything. And the New York Times, I think, wrote an editorial said, how is it possible workers are on their own? Yeah. And I think a little bit if the Supreme Court doesn't let the OSHA standard go through, um, um, that that's we're back to where we began, sadly. Yeah. All right. Um, thanks for speaking with me and explaining all this sort of Byzantine legal stuff around the court case. But um, I guess we'll see how that shakes out. 
Yeah, the, the, you know, as somebody that's done worker safety for 40 years and has been in the government and been a regulator, it's a very scary court for anybody thinking about the government playing a role in worker protection. And, you know, if the government doesn't play a role, there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just really very terrifying. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned that in was this Debbie Berkowitz, a former senior Magazine. official at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and also a practitioner fellow at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG, I wish I'd written that. So this week, I am at home recovering from my own bout with the Omicron variant, and we are obviously thinking a lot about the push to return to the workplace. So this week, I wanted to highlight a piece on an industry where I spent nearly 10 years of my life and where I learned the terrible practices of working sick that I continue to struggle against. I am talking about restaurants, of course, and the piece I'm talking about is by Chris Crowley at Grub Street, and it's titled, The Restaurant Industry Has Always Treated Sick Workers With No Remorse. Will Anything Change Because of Omicron? One would think that restaurants would be the very last place you'd want people coming in sick, but the reality is that restaurants run on the labor of the sick and injured nearly all the time. Crowley begins with a personal tale, quote, when my brother Matt was just a few years into his restaurant career, still working as a line cook, he got salmonella on the job. It was the restaurant's opening night, and he was one of just three cooks, including the chef. The situation was obviously precarious. There was no wiggle room. He was asked to stay and sat out prep before getting back on the line for service. I couldn't stand up, he recalls, adding that he threw up several times and was aching. Instead, the chef placed a chair on the line so I could sit down between pickups, end quote. I wish, of course, that I could say that this shocked me, but it doesn't. I was on the other side of that line, front of the house staff, for years, and I worked sick plenty. And I remember the attempts to call out that would have my managers whining and begging or alternately threatening that if I didn't come in, I could forget about my shifts. And the surveys bear out these anecdotes. Crowley writes, quote, In a 2015 survey of food industry workers, including those in restaurants, dairies, slaughterhouses, and other businesses, 51% of respondents say they always or frequently work when they are sick. Only 5.6% said they never do. As Heron, one of the chefs interviewed for the article, put it, Working through impediments is treated like a competitive sport, or at least it was until COVID-19. In the words of another cook, this was the first time illness was treated as anything besides an inconvenience. End quote. It is worth noting also that survey numbers also show that food industry workers were some of the most likely to die of COVID-19. One California study found that food and agriculture workers had some of the highest relative and per capita excess mortality. At 39% relative excess and 75 excess deaths per 100,000. In other words, 39% more deaths than would have been expected in that industry in a non pandemic year. Another study earlier in 2021 found that line cooks had the highest risk of dying during the pandemic, with a horrifying 60% increase in mortality. And I will link to those studies also at the Descent website. 
During the first round of the pandemic, of course, a lot of restaurants were involuntarily closed. But with this round, it seems the government has absolutely given up on any sort of restriction, and thus restaurants and their workers are muddling through, and it is up to the boss what things are going to look like. Crowley writes, quote, many operators announced temporary closing so that employees could get tested for or recover from the illness. Many tried to push through with thinner staff, all those signs we remember. And others didn't disclose outbreaks. In some cases, management was not so forthcoming with staff. While it appears many people have been staying away from restaurants because of Omicron, employees keep working while making less money. There was nothing surprising, really, about hearing that people were asked to keep working while sick or felt they've had to, that they've had to return to work before they felt well, because they always have, end quote. He continues, quote, the push to work no matter what is as much a result of toxic kitchen culture as it is about the economic reality of working in an industry where some of the workforce still earns the federal sub-minimum wage, $2.13 an hour, which hasn't changed since 1991. Some cities and states have a higher tipped minimum wage, including New York City, where it is $10 an hour for food service workers. Americans have an unhealthy relationship with work generally, but the people who bear the brunt of that are the working class and people of color and those employed in blue-collar industries like food service. End quote. And if the horror stories in this piece don't create sympathy in you for those restaurant workers, just think about the awful incentives this system puts in place in terms of spreading COVID to the customers, you know, to you. One restaurant worker told Crowley of his struggle when he felt ill, but couldn't find a COVID test in his home state of South Carolina. Quote, besides, there's no mandatory paid sick leave in South Carolina, and people working these jobs who do get positive tests now have to quarantine at their own cost. What do I do? Do I not go to work and risk not making money for an entire week? The worker said. If there's one week for me that I'm out five to seven days, it's going to put me in a really bad spot as far as paying my rent. Three days later, that worker was back on the job. My pick for ARG is The Big Business Behind Travel Nursing by Alice Herman in in These Times. Across the country, hospitals have been getting strained to the breaking point throughout the pandemic, and the healthcare workforce is facing a tragic situation. At a time when they're needed more than ever, frontline hospital workers are burning out. Some are quitting, others are wrestling with post-traumatic stress disorder, and increasingly, some are quitting to seek better work elsewhere, and increasingly, some are opting to seek better work elsewhere. For nurses, Better work might mean working for better pay in a different city, or even spending years on the road hopping from hospital to hospital. This is the itinerant life of the travel nurse. And during the pandemic, there's been a boom in travel nursing, headed by agencies that specialize in deploying, yes, they use the term deploying, nurses around the country like disaster relief workers or military reinforcements. But as Herman points out, better pay doesn't always come with better working conditions, especially at the sites that these nurses are often sent to, where they may face chaos, abuse, or wage theft. Here's one example that Herman describes, in which a nurse with the pseudonym Jen, when she was working for a staffing company called Crucial, observed that sexual harassment was rampant at the hotel where she and other nurses were being warehoused and not allowed to go anywhere while they worked. Quote, Jen called her supervisor, a crucial representative on site in New Orleans, to report her concerns. She says she described the unwanted advances from managers as well as a rumor that the men on site had been placing bets on which women they could sleep with. She told the representative that she was worried that added stress in an already high-stakes situation could create an unsafe work environment for female nurses. Jen had been perturbed by the atmosphere at the hotel, but she was even more shocked by what she says came next. In emails to Crucial and BCFS... 
that was the other contractor involved, obtained by In These Times, Jen alleges the crucial representative dismissed her concerns and told her to, quote, just keep her legs closed, unquote. And it gets worse. Her contract was then terminated, supposedly on the grounds that she had taken an unauthorized smoke break. And later, she was assigned to another job in Texas. But shortly afterwards, she received an email that read, quote, because of things that happened in New Orleans, you are not allowed to go on assignments for crucial staffing. Please do not travel to Texas, unquote. Another nurse, Ryan Speaker, was similarly blacklisted, he says, after he posted a viral video depicting unsanitary accommodations full of needles, bedbugs, and rats. Quote, Speaker says that immediately afterwards, his contact was cut short. According to Speaker, the nurses had originally been told they would be on assignment in Austin, Texas, but were transferred to Waco at the last minute, where they were moved into a budget motel. Quote, our jobs are hard, Speaker tells in these times. You bring all that stress home with you, and then you still can't relieve any of that stress because you're worried. You're going to take home bed bugs to your family, or you're waking up with bites all over you, unquote. What's even more disturbing is that these shady nursing agencies are capitalizing on the influx of federal funds that has gone to aid hospitals during the pandemic. Hospital administrators are using gobs of federal cash to hire temporary nurses and outsourcing much of the management of this itinerant workforce to the companies that claim to deliver nurses on demand. One travel nurse agency's CEO has said she wants to create, quote, the Amazon of healthcare staffing, unquote. The contractor BCFS also operates a child migrant detention center on the border, in addition to managing travel nurses. The travel nursing boom is a symbol of a systemic crisis in the nursing field. In a neoliberal medical marketplace, gaps in the permanent workforce are filled using short-term stopgap measures like travel nurses, which in turn further destabilize the workforce, erode working conditions, and might possibly lead even more staff nurses to switch to travel nursing, thereby exacerbating the deficits that the temporary workers are designed to fill. It's a self-perpetuating cycle of growing precarity. The presence of travel nurses who are earning much higher wages than regular nurses at a hospital setting, Herman notes, quote, can have a demoralizing effect on nurses staffing local hospitals, unquote. Labor unions decry the two-tier wage scales precisely for this reason. Differential pay, such as when travel nurses earn two to three times more per hour than regular hires who are doing the same work, pits workers against each other when they should be organizing together. And it's not simply that there aren't enough nurses to go around. There have been claims of a so-called nursing shortage floating around the healthcare industry for years. And both before and during the pandemic, nurses' unions have countered that the shortage is actually a manufactured crisis. Herman notes that according to a 2017 report published by the Department of Health and Human Services, quote, most states have plenty of qualified nurses, more than they have open nursing positions, unquote. It's just that there's a shortage of good, stable nursing jobs. In fact, last year, many hospitals laid off nurses somehow in the middle of a massive public health crisis. Do travel nurses have any recourse? For those who have suffered direct abuse, some have sued their employers. And as we've reported before, the nursing workforce has some of the strongest unions in the country, known for their militancy and advocacy on progressive issues. Even travel nurses have a union. But without a stable long-term job, these nurses are in a position that literally alienates them from both their work and their fellow workers. One nurse, who had worked in 17 hospitals since 2020, told in these times, quote, I've been separated from the person I used to be, unquote. And that's true on many levels for these nurses. The travel nursing industry is responding to an emergency, but it's one that's largely avoidable. Instead of a healthcare system that helps nurses earn a decent living, we have a labor structure that forces them to separate themselves from their communities. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha and Colin for making us sound good. If you'd like to get 
our archived episodes, you can go to our website at dissentmagazine.org. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review for us on your podcast platform. And if you'd like to support our independent journalism and help us keep reporting on critical labor issues throughout this pandemic and beyond, please consider donating to our Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash belabored. You can also support our work by getting a subscription to Descent Magazine at descentmagazine.org. And as always, we would love to hear from you. In this new year of 2022, what are you looking forward to at your workplace or in the labor movement? What are you dreading now that we've been through striketober and strikesgiving? What do you think the next wave of strikes will be like? Are you a nurse dealing with chronic understaffing at your workplace or in danger of getting laid off? Are you debating whether or not it's safe to go back to your workplace? If you have any story ideas or feedback, you can get in touch with us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Happy New Year and over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.